Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Drew Johnson. Uh, Dr. Johnson recently wrote a book called Biblical Philosophy, A Hebraic Approach to the Old and New Testaments. Uh, Dr. Johnson is the director of the Center of Hebraic Thought at King's College in New York City, and this is a kind of magnum opus for his work on looking at the scriptures as a base text for uh, what he calls a philosophy or second-order thinking. And he his contention in the book is that Christians and others who read the Old and New Testaments as Scripture should value those Scriptures as their own, uh, in their own way, as a savvy and smart and sophisticated text, and not feel the need to necessarily always draw in other intellectual traditions. It is an intellectual tradition of its own. So it's a thought-provoking book, a little outside of my uh, sort of typical interviews, uh, but, I, but I thought as we were doing all these conversations on philosophy that his voice would be an interesting one to kind of challenge uh, Christians in a different way. Uh, so I hope that you appreciate this conversation. I have a few more coming up with Mike Hobbits on T.F. Torrance and the Doctrine of Theosis, uh, Jonathan Pennington on philosophy uh, and the Christian tradition, as well as a uh, conversation with Louis Marcos. So uh, we've got a lot of stuff lined up. Uh, thank you for your patience uh, in the last month as I was starting school in a new position at St. Louis University, um, as well as uh, ha in welcoming my daughter, uh, who's now five months. Or five weeks old, uh, welcoming her into the world. So it's been a crazy few weeks uh, at the uh, at the Kim household. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, please rate us, review us um, on iTunes, and uh, yeah, drop us a line if you have any questions or concerns. And we appreciate you listening. All right. Well. Uh, welcome, uh, Drew Johnson. Uh, Dr. Johnson is the Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at the King's College in New York City, uh, and he is the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought. Um, and I take this center to be something that's sort of probably come up from all of his research, which is uh, in some ways maybe the the... I don't know, the flowering of all of your research could be the, the book uh, that just came out with Cambridge University Press, uh, which we're here to talk about, uh, Biblical Philosophy, A Hebraic Approach to the Old and New Testaments. Um, and so, um, yeah, welcome, Dr. Johnson. Thank you very much, Charles. And yeah, you're, you're exactly right. That's, that's the manifesto. And it's, uh, it's dedicated to my good friend, Yoram Hazoni. Because he basically pushed me into, he bullied me into writing that because uh, he's like, quit, <laughs> quit giving us the pieces of your system and just give the whole thing. So, uh, so that's because you that's have a precursor that book that's kind of epistemo on epistemology in biblical thinking, and that plays a, a little role at the end of the book too. Yeah, um, yeah it, exactly. But okay. Yeah. So yeah, I did a lot on epistemology, which helped me think about, as you probably noticed, methodology. Like, how do you keep uh -huh. yourself from wrecking wrecking the project methodologically and. Um, Help me think, you know, a lot, of, a lot of philosophical discussion is always going to circulate around what's the epistemological model at work within that system. So yeah, it, 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 it was not completely, uh, it was adjacent to everything I was doing. So <laughs> very good. Um, all right. So that's, that's the book. I, yeah, I saw it, I think on your Twitter feed, um, actually mm. was how I, and so, uh, Drew also is a, uh, interviews people for on script, uh, the podcast on script, right? So yes, the um, wildly popular on script. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually I was go. just in Wisconsin yesterday <laughs> filming a live episode of, of, uh, on script. So that was, it was fun to see actual people who listen to the podcast, like drive from Chicago up to Wisconsin just to, like see the thing. And I was like, wow, wow, this feels, feels real all of a sudden. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, we, one time we did a live, I, I started this podcast like six years ago with two buddies of mine. We taught at a classical school um, uh. and about a year into it. And, and the only reason I think we have followers is because my friend Tom knows everybody in Southern yeah. Idaho. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and that was where we were living at the time. Uh, not right. that it's that populous of a place, but when right. you know everybody in the, so anyway, we, we had a bunch of people come to one of our, we did a live event thing out there one time and that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. But I uh, mean, re seeing real years. eyeballs is pretty, pretty freaky. So <laughs> in especially post COVID. But... Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I have sent Drew some questions. Uh, they, the, you know, I, I always like to say that I hope that my interviews are like sort of an addendum to the book or something. Um, like I don't want to just straight 
recapitulate what uh, Drew has argued, Dr. Johnson has argued, uh, because I want you to read the book. Um, I want people to engage his scholarly work. There's a lot there, uh, more than than can be digested in an hour. Uh, but but um, I always enjoy that I get to read a book and then actually talk with the author. Uh, so it's a yeah. lot of fun for me. Um, and uh, I've learned a lot from this book. It has made me think about, uh, you know, think about the Bible in different ways um, and what exactly it means to do sort of philosophy. And uh, so mm. so I really appreciated it. Oh, good. Well, that was that was its only goal is just to pry <laughs> open a little crack in a door for people to think differently. So, yeah. Well, um, so my first question, uh, I'm going to sort of. Um, take uh start with a, a passage of scripture that came to mind and i know that uh it comes up and towards the end of the book uh but but Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians uh, in chapter one, where is the wise person? Who is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And then Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Uh, so I, I know that, you know, I know that you're familiar with this uh, uh, quote, of course, uh, but how do you how do you think your book engages with Paul's warnings against Greek philosophy, uh, but also kind of uh, moves beyond them? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure they actually are warnings against Greek philosophy. Actually, I, okay. I think I think it, when you follow, you know, there's like you can pick a little quote out here. And of course, people have picked this quote. To, yeah. I mean, I've heard people actually say this is why nobody should study modern philosophy or, or contemporary philosophy because Paul says not to. Right. And I say, OK, well, just keep on reading and see what he does. Right. So he, he that's where he starts, you know, eloquent words empty the power of its cross. You know, he starts out really heavy on soothsaying and, and wisdom of the world and philosophy. Um, but then notice what he does in the rest of Corinthians is uh he, he doesn't say, you know, get thee thou forth to a prayer closet and be spiritual for the rest of your life, right? And spiritual, I mean, not in the, the Greco-Roman sense of spirituality, but in the, you know, our sense of spirituality. Uh, no, he then actually programmatically lays out and reasons and using story and, and, and their own biography of the church and what's going on in the church. Uh, and he argues with them about the nature of this abstract thing called unity. What does it mean to be one body? Despite the Corinthian diversity, you know, that's it's famously a port town. It's a debaucherous town. You know, it's fully Greco-Roman, but it has all these Eastern elements in there. So what does it mean for these people who have, you know, real people and real problems? If you haven't read the letter, like it's real, real problems uh, that everybody <laughs> who's pastor today uh, understands. Um, but there's this thing called uh, unity in the Holy Spirit that he believes is possible. And so he slices at it through a lot of different angles, both in principle. Uh, he talks about it as this principle of unity. And then what does it look like in concrete situations? Uh, and that's just reasoning with people about the nature of a reality outside of any particular instance of it. So I would actually say what he's doing is he's warning them about particularly deleterious modes of philosophizing and then trying to give them good models for how to do it. And it's, and the model includes living it out in their community. It's not an individual sport. It's not about the tranquility of their souls. Uh, although that can be a, a knock on effect of what he's doing, but, um, but that, that it's actually about them as a community becoming wise and discerning about this abstract topic called unity. Yeah, which so we I could stand to think about today as well. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, and and I think uh, part of even how you responded to that maybe was something like, you know, uh, having just read the book, you use some phrases about narrative um, and reasoning and uh, their own sort of understanding of the church within uh, the broader um, Hebraic paradigm. You know, some of those things are part of what you try to elucidate in the book is exactly how Paul. Uh, so, you know, how Paul thinks and reasons um, in a way that's more indicative of his Hebraic background than a Greek mm -hmm. background. Um, yeah. So it, in some ways, maybe what he's even doing is saying like, the Greeks don't have the, uh, could, I mean, would you say that, you know, maybe Paul's saying the Greeks don't have um, the total claim to philosophizing. <laughs> they don't have the goods as it were. Uh, <laughs> okay. they, they have some good, right? Um, but they don't have the goods. Yeah, I, it's actually... Uh, I did not know it, but I was at a, a seminary yesterday in Wisconsin that um, it was actually a very like bringing Neoplatonism back to like, let's make uh, Platon or, or Christianity platonic again or something like that. Um, 
and I was sitting there talking about this book and, um, I, you know, the, the basic data points and Jonathan Pennington, my friend, who's a, a gospel scholar has pointed this out with his book, Jesus, the great philosopher and sermon on the mountain, human flourishing that, um, that Jesus, you know, if you just want to talk about Jesus as recorded in the book of Matthew, which is where his sweet spot is, uh, is engaging wholeheartedly in the virtue ethics tradition, which we can talk about later. Um, but he's not engaging to say like, this is good enough, go down this road. He's saying, no, there's obviously something here that's uh, true and good and useful. But he then reroutes it in the Torah's thinking, right? He says, but here's here's how the Torah thinks and here's how you've misunderstood the Torah. And let me recalculate the Torah for you so you can see what the Torah was always doing that you missed. He's not giving anything new there. He's only going back to the old. And so, you know, Jonathan says it this way, or he said it to me in conversations. I don't know if he said it in writing, but he's like, the... You know, if Jesus, if you think about what he's doing there, he's saying the Hebraic tradition, which I would say the Hebraic intellectual tradition is powerful enough. It can go toe to toe with the greatest Roman philosophies of his day. And Jesus thinks it it wins, right? Like the Hebraic tradition wins. It's better at the end of the day. I think Paul does the same thing. Um, he puts he puts it in direct conversation. He'll he'll do a lot of like, OK, I, I know you can't quite understand what I'm saying, so I'll put it in a way that you can hear it. But at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is move you over to this other intellectual system. And by intellectual, I mean spiritual, embodied, communitarian, et cetera. I, I don't mean an individual sitting in their own mind, Cartesian style, uh, wrapping on chunks of wax, trying to think about the nature of knowledge. I think I heard the phrase from uh, James K. Smith, but I'm not sure. The brain on the stick kind of. Idea. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. Jamie Smith's. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And even then, a brain on a stick, you know, I'd point out, it's a great analogy to get you thinking about it, but a brain on a stick is still an embodied situation. Yeah. <laughs> it's an embodied situation in a community already. So, like, we just can't get away from it. And the biblical authors are like, why would you want to get away from that? Like, that's the stuff, man, philosophically and theologically. That's the sweet spot. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, so one of the reasons that I was so intrigued by this book anyway is uh, I suspect you might have been talking to, or at least I know he's there, uh, Hans Bersma uh, at uh, Nashtoa House. And so he's yeah. been on the po- he's been on the podcast. Um, I bet he has. He- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I, I find a lot of what uh, Dr. Bersma is trying to do very appealing. Um, yeah, and yeah. He, he was a teacher of a uh, professor of mine for a year at SLU. He was here for a year. So that's how I got to know him. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, he definitely is trying to uh, talk about Christian Platonism and to what extent we can learn from this sort of Neoplatonic tradition. And so, you know, and he's put forward that on the podcast. So those who are listening can go back and see our conversation with him. Uh, but that's one reason that I wanted to have you here was like, you know, there are that's not the only way. Uh, and, right. and that's not the only that's not the only part of the Christian tradition, even if it's one that I find particularly persuasive. Um, that's what made your book so interesting to me. I was like, OK, I need to always be aware that there's more that there's more that I could learn. There are different ways to crack this nut. Um, and so, uh, I, yeah, I don't know if that uh, I'll be looking yeah. forward to your conversation with him. But I'm, I mean, yeah, he and I should should talk at some point. I know he's had kind of a, a rivalry with Ian Proven at, uh, at Regent where he, I mean, an intellectual French friendly yeah. rivalry on, yeah. the, on these topics. Yeah. And I think, um, at the end of the day, um, you know, when I read his, his book, heavenly participation a long time ago, um, I, I remember thinking like, okay, well, he's raised a lot of issues of Platonism. I had never thought about before, which I love that in a book. Like, okay, I've never thought about that. I need to take that seriously. Think that one through. But at the end of the day, what I'm going to suggest is, okay, you have this uh, Platonist tradition of uh, intellectualism and you have this Hebraic tradition. There, There is kind of a choose this day whom you're going to serve, like because you actually cannot enter whole hog into both. And all, obviously all the patristics knew this, right? All the fathers knew this and mothers. Um, and, and actually they're making these distinctions in their writing. Um, even Justin Martyr, who I know often gets accused of being the most Platonist of Platonists, <laughs> Uh, there's, you know, there's been some uh, people r- writing about him recently that are like, well, if you look a little bit closer, he seems to be making a lot of similar moves that Paul is moving, where he's like, yeah, Platonism, great. But actually, let me tell you about this other philosophical system that's pretty, pretty great, too. And again, putting them head to head and and seeing which one wins, if you want to speak about in kind of American competitive terms. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's right. Like, I mean, a lot of the Athanasius and others, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, they'll talk about 
they they call like they t actually will will sort of chastise the Hellenic approach or the Hellenes or right. you know they they, they do want to d distinguish themselves to some extent from what is Greek. Now they'll talk about philosophy and true philosophy or as in Justin Martyr the divine philosophy and these sorts of things. Like so you know they're very aware that they're part of a philosophical tradition. Um, and but but they don't think that it's simply an importation of those uh, ideas uh, uh, from the sort of the pagan Greek world like they're right. you know, and, and we may think that they overlook things or that they're still assuming certain things. Right. Um, but they at least uh, like by their own words, think that they're doing a separation. Um, that yeah. there's something a little different. Even as you say that, the, the example that comes to my mind is, you know, I teach Hebrew Bible in, in English uh, every semester to freshmen as a core class. And when we get to Leviticus and sexuality, actually, you just get through Genesis and it's like you know, so many sexual escapades. You know, most of them are shocked by that point because they had no idea all this stuff is in the Bible. And then you get to Leviticus where you get these prohibitions of sexual relationships. Um, and and I, I when I first started teaching, I, had, I was not hip to the issue. Like they have no conceptual world of sexuality that in any way overlaps with the biblical author's conceptual world of sexuality, right? Yeah. Like theirs is completely front loaded with completely different concepts of autonomy, body, self, uh, the telos of sexuality. So when you when I say simple things like well, sexuality and, and baby making are just completely intertangled in the Bible. Like no yeah. biblical author would ever separate those two things out as two separate, you know. And you can see a lot of them going like, well, crap, that's I don't think that that's right or true. And um, so what I have to so in that situation where there's like the Venn diagram is barely overlapped, like there is a thin razor's edge where there's overlapping, I end up saying a lot of things about sexual identity, not because anybody thinks sexual identity is an actual thing. I mean, a lot of queer theologians don't even think that's a thing. Um, uh -huh. But um, but and nobody before 1860 thought sexual identity was a thing. But like, because your view of sexuality is completely ensconced in sexual identity, let me say this in a way that you can understand. But the goal, again, is to bring you back over and say, but so you know, to peel back layers so you can eventually hear the biblical conceptuality, not even so that you have to agree with it, just so you can hear what they're doing. Um, yeah. And it's a tedious process and it's not, a, you can't do it in one lecture. Like you, you gotta keep basting that turkey. And then, and eventually you're only gonna get about half of them to actually see what's going on there and care about it. Uh, most of them are just gonna say like, so is it anti-homosexual or not? And I'm like, yeah, well that's, <laughs> that's five degrees of the wrong question, right? Um, so, so I feel like when I read Paul, I completely get that, you can see that similar frustrate, not in a good frustration. He's rolling ideas over saying, okay, you, I, I know this is how you hear it in your culture. And, and, and I, and I cited even there that, you know, these philological studies of trying to find the center of Paul's rhetoric. Um, they, they basically ended up all giving up and saying the center of his rhetoric seems to be entirely audience contingent, whoever he's talking to, he thinks about how they need to hear it. So that I, I became all things to all people. Apparently he was really serious about that. Like that even goes all the way down into his choice of prepositions. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think uh, the, the word it gets thrown around here is engaging the culture, right? Uh, that's the one we throw around in Christianese, but I think they're doing something way more sophisticated than engaging culture, whatever people think they mean by that today. Uh, they're really doing a usurpation job. Like, almost like those imposter perfumes in the eighties, you know, you like Giorgio, you'll love, you know, whatever. Right. So let me, let me get you in the same room, uh, conceptually, and then we can start letting these things, uh, tear into each other. Yeah. And just as a side note, one of the other sort of nuggets, I guess, that I took from this book, Biblical Philosophy, was when you talked about the way uh, the narrative approach to law um, and mm. sort of like what's going on in the legal frameworks of Leviticus and some of that like stuff that feels very tedious and foreign to us because we come from like this Anglo legal tradition, statuary right. tradition, I think you call it. Uh, statutory uh, tradition. Yeah. Statutory tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so like even that was like helpful to me. I was like, oh, right. I can't just import my yeah. concept into that and you know look, I, I should know better i've i've been, I've been have i've had some training in history but i still we're hadn't all about doing that. it right <laughs> yeah well yeah. even if you have training in history unless you know that the statutory approach the law statutory approach being there's a law if you break it there's a penalty and that's basically the structure of legal thinking 
which is not at all what's going on in scripture. It's not actually not at all what's going on in the ancient world. Um, uh, even the, and people go, well, what about this law? And it's like, well, let me let's read five laws next to each other. And now notice what they did with narratizing the law. They make the law into a micro narrative rather than just a merely if then, right? If this happens and this is how the punches. So they're doing they're making very sophisticated moves. I mean, a lot of people have known this for literally millennia, right? Um, and there's been people hopping up and down excited. About, I mean, you, if you read Calvin's commentaries, you know, he's reading all of this in the Hebrew and he is just super excited to show you all this stuff that's going on. Um, but it gets lost and there's, and there's obviously very particular reasons, even within biblical studies, why this has been lost over the last 150 years or so. Um, and it always has to do with the Germans, right? Uh, we, you know, we always blame <laughs> yeah, well. them for, for everything. But uh, yeah, there's certain schools of approaching even the biblical text that have have lost the sophisticated, um, their sophisticated use of literature, which Robert Alter has kind of helped people to pick that back up. Um, and essentially what I'm doing is kind of a side project to Robert Alter. Like he's saying, look, in the Hebrew, they're doing all this really sophisticated literary stuff. Um, but when we translate it, we, we translate it out of all the sophisticated stuff and we show like this bland or these very different things. I'm trying to say, yeah, and they're also doing all this sophisticated philosophical stuff. Um, but we often miss it because we read it devotionally only or or we read it with statute. We read these laws as if they're just, you know, harsh and mean and penalizing, et cetera. So sorry, you didn't ask for any of that, but I just got on a soapbox there. <laughs> no, well, that it was it was helpful. Um, all right. Well, so the the second question I basically had was. Uh, you know, you spend a lot of time and, and the book's called Biblical Philosophy, uh, which, mm. of course, is, uh, as many will know, uh, you know, a Greek word, philosophia, love of wisdom. Uh, but you spend a lot of the book trying to establish uh, what counts um, as philosophy. Um, and, and I know that that's uh, you try like one of the things that like following along in your argument is I could sort of I felt like I could follow you trying to say, all right, how am I going to uh, make this make sense? Um, right. And and so. So, uh, but you know, one, one phrase that came, came, keeps coming back was second order thinking or thinking about yeah. thinking. Um, and so I wanted to say, wh why did you choose to call this biblical philosophy and not biblical second order thinking, uh, or biblical, <laughs> even biblical rationality or something? Right, like what, right. why philosophy? Why do you want to hold on to that as what this is about? Um, well, I feel like I say this all the time, so I might've even said it earlier, but, um, the first thing to know about publishing books is authors do not get to say what the title of the book is, right? right. If, yeah, if, if you have a good relationship with a publisher, then they will ask you, Hey, what do you think of the book? Um, this is my first book with Cambridge. Uh, and so like this goes all the way down to the first time I saw the cover of the book was on Amazon. Right. <laughs> so, so now they did run the title behind me and I thought, okay, that's a little more bold than I would have said, but um, they wanted it to be a little provocative. So with that yeah. title, same biblical philosophy. Um, but I would also say, you know, if you think about second order reasoning, one of the reasons I was involved in a work group uh, of ancient Near Eastern scholars, so Egyptologists and Assyriologists, uh, Mesopotamian scholars, thinking about second order reasoning in the ancient Near East um, and how you discern that through various uh, literary traditions in the ancient Near East. What I found out in that group is that they all see, and they have for a long time, uh, is they see the Hebrew Bible as representing an intellectual tradition that's over with the Greeks and the Rome, Romans. Like uh -huh. they see it as clearly this high level, high order intellectual uh, progress uh, where the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians are kind of stuck in doing, they're doing abstraction, but they're doing it so cryptically and so differently that it, it's, it's hard to tell exactly what they're doing. Um, so... The other thing is, and you said you could tell I was struggling to say, how am I going to say this? And that, that I'm glad to hear you say that because that was exactly the problem is what would you do here? Normally you just say, well, let's get the agreed upon definition of philosophy and then <laughs> uh, and then just show how this either fits it or it doesn't or it should create a bigger category or something like that. So I started looking up all, all the standard places in philosophy to find uh, definitions of philosophy and started emailing friends who are working philosophers. And, and lo and behold, everybody gave me a different answer to the question, <laughs> what is philosophy yeah. or what is the nature of the philosophy? And then I got down to kind of like, well, what's the philosophical method, right? Yeah. Um, and could not even find a center mass to shoot at here. Yeah. And so I said like, look, we're not gonna even try this. Uh, who am I to try and define? So I really went to this kind of like philosophical style. There's things like you hand me, you, you know, if I handed you a text, 
that some point and say like, what do you think this text is? You've never read it before in your life. There's going to be certain genetic markers that are going to tip you off. This is Hellenistic period. This is Roman. Um, this is Byzantine. You know, there's going to be, and whatever those features are, whether those are things that like are ways of talking about topics or ideas that come up again. So if somebody's talking about sin and non-being, I'm like, oh, okay. So now we're talking about a late ancient uh, Christian philosophy, right? Or, or all the way up to early modern, you can get people talking about sin and non-being. I always had to explain to students when I taught philosophy of religion, like, okay, believe it or not, there was a time in, in the world where people thought of goodness on one end of a continuum and non-being on the end of the, uh, the other end of the continuum, right? And they're like, what? Right? So there are, uh, there are topics and there are methods and there are ways of talking about things and there are convictions about what is like, so the conviction that goodness and non-being are on a cont continuum. Um, those are the genetic markers. And so as I looked across scripture, I just said, okay, are there, are there any stable genetic markers that when you see these things, you can say like, okay, that seems definitively Hebraic. And so that's where I kind of outline those. And <clears throat> excuse me, the other thing is like, look, every, I, I, I'm convinced that if your humans gather together, you're doing speculation about the nature of the world. Like everybody's doing it, right? So you just got to figure out what's their way of speculating, speculating about the world. But I made this distinction, which was wholly mine. Nobody gave this to me. I'm sure somebody else has made it before. Uh, it's kind of uninteresting to me that humans are speculating about things. Um, what When it becomes interesting is when they say, and this is why you should speculate about it in this way, right? Mm -hmm. The advocacy of mm -hmm. speculation. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what I just find as moving from kind of scholarly to speculation to a philosophical style was when you advocate a particular way. So we can say, you know, there's been arguments about this, but I think a lot of people would agree that there is a Socratic way to philosophize. There's a, like a method. Uh, there's a Platonic method. There's an Aristotelian method. And I just want to say, so that's why it's philosophy. So when you've entered the advocacy, that's when I said, okay, that's more like philosophy because it means people valued it. They wanted to pass it down generation to generation. You had to opt in in order to learn it this way. Um, right. And that seems like something worth talking about. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, and sort of staying on the topic of the book before I get into my uh, patristics scholar yeah, reading your stuff book where I have questions. no idea what to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, you, you uh, it's like once you're so ensconced in kind of a world, you know, I yeah, yeah. like I read everything through that world. But I'm trying, I'm trying to stay in your your field for a while, and then and then I'll I'll be appreciate I'll be my, uh, you know, those annoying questions at the conference, like, uh, well how come you didn't think about the one thing that I know about? <laughs> you know? Right. How come you didn't write it the way I would have written it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, which which will be my later question. So I will do uh, my Excellent. excellent. <laughs> uh, so uh, you say on 84, only once we have grasped something central to a break, philosophy, can we begin to put its questions and insights into conversation with other philosophies, uh, which is kind of like I say, sort of what I wanted to do. I wanted to say, okay, I, if I, I take your argument, I, I want to know what I do with all of this stuff that I've studied. Uh, mm -hmm. But before we get to that, um, what is what is central to Hebraic philosophy, as you argue in the book? So you just gave one advocacy. Well, that's just general philosophy. That, that's um, the general advocacy, category. The yeah. advocacy. Yeah, but, yeah. So you have to ask the question, do we see a style, a method of reasoning about the nature of the world uh, advocated particularly? Right. Yeah. So because they are uh, prophetic texts, right? They're purported to be from prophets speaking on behalf of the God of the universe. Obviously, advocacy is going to be an easy, that's a low hurdle to pass <laughs> and say, yeah, they're, they're advocating things. Are they advocating them uh, consistently? So I split this into modes and convictions. Like, so what's this, the, the stylistic mode by which they, they try to get you to speculate about things? And then what do they seem to be necessarily true or good or useful in order to think about it in the right way? So uh, modes would be, I, I came up with two and look, I, I changed the names on these a half dozen times, <laughs> ask friends, like I had different names for all of these than the ones that are in the book. And like, there's no family friendly way to, to get, so just bear with these names. Right. Uh, so I said there it's pixelated argument. So you can compare them. And I do throughout the book to the, a caricature. Uh, I think it's just a helpful caricature. It's obviously not going to be true in all places of, of Greco-Roman philosophical traditions, more Greco than Roman, actually. But um, if if you think of linear deductive arguments as being the, the stuff philosophically, uh, the Hebraic philosophy is going to say, like, actually, more like Robert California off the office. Like, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you another story. Let me tell you a poem that is meant to interpret that story. 
let me give you a series of laws that are meant to reason with you about the nature of that thing that I just talked about in that story. Um, again, Paul in 1 Corinthians, it's just topic after topic after topic, all slicing away at that same concept of unity in a diverse uh, setting. And what does unity actually mean if there's actually uh, uh, tension to diversity or something like that? So that's pixelated. And pixelated meaning like no single pixel on my screen right now tells me anything about what's on the screen that's meaningful. It's only when I step back and see how the pixels are coordinated. Or I, I think I was originally called this pointillist. Uh, so if yeah. you think of pointillism like paintings. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like George Surratt. Um, so that's one mode. Another mode is indirectly related is that, that those pixels are networked together. And specifically in the Hebraic tradition, they use literary tactics and techniques to connect ideas, right? So they retell a story. So there's a, there is, most people have speculated there's probably some kind of reason why you get a shepherd helping somebody at a well. That story gets repeated over and over again. That you get a young Hebrew thrown into a prison under a king who can interpret dreams. Like there's reasons why those stories get told. Th those are the like the big glaring billboard obvious ones. There are lots more sophisticated ones that if you read it in the Hebrew uh, become obvious through repetition of words, what they call light word or um, uh chiasms, uh, parallelisms, there's all kinds of literary, but notably these are literary techniques. Um, so they're not oral techniques, they're, they're specifically verbal written techniques um, for making sure, like winking and nodding and saying, "Do you are you picking up what I'm laying down here, right? Yeah. Which means it, it is a wisdom tradition. It's actually, it is, it's, it's actually making you do the work of picking up the breadcrumbs that they're laying down. Um, so it's highly inductive and uh, disparate. Uh, and so these pixels are networked together so you can trace networks of justice. Like, what is the nature of justice? Well, that's not ever discussed in one place in the Hebrew Bible. It's discussed in a hundred places across story, you know, seeing unjust, story, unjust stories unfolding, hearing some legal reasoning on what's just and uh, what's not, never telling you why it's just or not, right? Just presuming that you're going to be able to put this, uh, put this together and, and extend the thinking of justice into new situations which you haven't seen before. So that's what we call wisdom, right? Skillful yeah. discernment, the ability to see the same abstract principle in a new situation that you haven't seen it before. And this is like, we're, you know, we're academics. So you know how this goes in like a symposium when you're trying to figure out whether this person actually knows what they're talking about or not, <laughs> uh, or whether they just have a cute little paper they gave. And so you kind of throw them this new situation and, they're, and, and even something where they go, like we, this is where we scholars have our aha moment, right? With uh, people when they say, okay, here's why that sounds like it fits with my thesis, but it actually doesn't. And then they give you a very discerning description of why that seems to fit, but it actually doesn't. And that, you know, that's Aristotelian genus differentia, what it is and what it isn't. Um, which of course the biblical authors are doing centuries before Aristotle comes up with this. Um, so, that that and then they have these convictions that I label mysterionist, creationist, um, trans demographic, which I think we'll talk about later, yeah. and then ritualist, which is the big one uh, as well. That these are all important. You know, creationist just means they believe there's a God who created the universe. Abraham, Isaac, Jake, they're like that history. They're all part of that history. Mysterionist, you know, kind of like McGinn's mysterianism. Like you're just not going to be able to figure out the whole, and that's not the project. Right. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't sweep away discovery and speculation. It just says like there's no naive program, there's no positivist program. We're gonna uh, figure that, all that out. And then ritualism it comes down to that. In order to know what you need to know, like uh, about the nature of this reality that is abstract, you have to embody these these actions in community in order to see what I'm trying to show you which means that you will never ever understand the nature of justice unless you embody these particular practices in community in order to discern justice in the world or, or something like that. Uh, or discern unjust use of political power. If you want to get into political yeah. philosophy, there's a lot of political philosophy, obviously in the Bible, both old and new Testament. I mean, almost everything Jesus says is political philosophy, right? Of some sort or another. So that between those, those modes and those convictions, and now you can hear and kind of, if you take a caricature of Greco Roman traditions of philosophizing, I mean, I'd say actually you do have ritualism in Greco. I mean, there's per peripatetic way, right? You walk along the way, the schools, to my shock, um, I'd never really heard anybody talk about this, but that a lot of uh, Greek philosophers uh, poo-pooed uh, people who merely 
you know, were sophists who just talked and made arguments. Yeah. They really wanted to see how you live your life, right? Yeah. And that it was consistent. It was still individualistic. It was all aimed at the tranquility of the soul. But I th and I think that's why Greco-Roman thought, besides Christianity entering the Greco-Roman world, one of the reasons it's such a great conversation partner for Christianity is because it has so many elements that, that the Hebraic philosophy is trying to get at. It just valorizes and prioritizes some of the wrong ones, I would say, um, which makes it always slightly off kilter from what the Hebraic philosophy is doing, even when it's really close. Interesting. Yeah. Well, one thing I uh, just uh, go at the pixelated one was one I found really helpful. And I've done a little bit of Jewish biblical interpretation. Uh, when oh, I was well, in, then, you uh, know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I was like, that's exactly right. And but it was it's funny comparing that with. So when I was growing up, I had a Bible that had topics in the back mm. and you could look for, you know, if I was struggling with sadness, but yeah. what the book would do was list a whole bunch of different passages all across the Bible, because in a sense, I mean, I guess, you know, you might say, you might look at that and say, well, look at how influenced we are by sort of more Greco-Roman kind of thinking. Right. We have a topic and we want right. to know, how do I read about that topic? But then when you go to the Bible, you have to say, well, you read the whole thing, uh, like you know, in order, <laughs> and stand in order, back and look and yeah. and see and see what uh, comes to focus, right? Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. there's sort of like that table of contents almost embodies both of those things. Like this is the tr the trouble that I had. I wanted to find my topic, but I couldn't yeah. find it in just one place. But and think about as a researcher, this happens all the time, right? Is you have this this intuitive thesis you think might be going on, but as you research it, like the reality of the research, like what you find yeah. out reshapes the question, right? So if you have the same thesis when you started and when you finished, then I'm going to say you you were just, you're actually doing propaganda at that point, right? <laughs> it has to be uh, kicked back. I think also, you know, and this is to your point, the thing that emerges when you see the kind of the philosophical style of the Hebrew Bible that gets worked into the New Testament it is you see their anthropology and their their methodology that kind of emerges. Um, and it really is telling you about what kind of philosophical communities are good. And I mean, good in the kind of the fundamental sense and what's, what's even possible, right? Cause I, I think we would all say there are certain ways of speculating about the nature of reality that would be wrong. Or maybe we, as Christians, we'd even say wicked or evil or bad, right. Um, or useless or, you know, um, uh, things that spin people into interior speculation that actually is ultimately unhelpful for them, right? So, um, so yeah, I think I, I think it's you know the method, the mode, the philosophical style then actually helps reveal the theological anthropology, then which actually then reinforces what kind of philosophies are good, permissible, and and actually lead you down the road to better understanding. And you know, you can think about yeah, you know, like really obvious examples. Um, if you think about medical speculation, um, you know, medical ideas. What well, there were people at one point in history that like vivisected living human beings just to see how they would react to it. They would just inject them with chemicals, and and you know, like the the unit in Japan that was doing this to uh, POWs or Dr. Mengele, right? These are extreme examples, but those are you know, in some ways, those are epistemological enterprises. But we. Uh, we have to say why those are wrong because they're un they're inhumane, right? And I uh -huh. think what you get in the Hebraic notion is a humane way. And of course, you know, Socratic and Platonic speculation, they believe they are selling a humane way. It's just their theological yeah. anthropology, I would say, is is not right. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, I just say they didn't yeah. get it right. Uh, they were yeah. close, but no cigar. And it's a just so good enough story. But uh, it's I have to say, at the end of the day, I'm just like, that's not quite what the biblical authors, that's not where they want to get you. Well, uh, I'll do my, uh, I'll do my sort of change gears question. Um, okay. and, uh, so this is, uh, the thing that we've started asking on the podcast. Um, and, uh, I, it, you know, get some interesting responses. And I always say, uh, you can, you know, this can be, this can be something that happened within the course of your research, something, uh, frivolous or something, uh, more, you know, in, in your broader life. But what is one thing that you believe to be true that you once thought was false, uh, or vice versa? One thing that you believe is false but you once thought was true um and in mm. some respects this goes towards uh what you've been saying like if your if your thesis of your research doesn't change to some degree well you're not you know that's probably propaganda as you called it but it may be that you're not actually thinking about reality like you're not actually encountering yeah. whatever you're studying you're just 
trying to push through what you already think to be true. Um, so yeah. anyway, I, as a f philosophers, uh, I did this question with my two buddies in the podcast and it's, it's uh, philosophers love this kind of question because it sort of opens up how you're reasoning or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so the thing that I think of is actually my, my view of philosophy. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I, I think, or my, maybe my focus, maybe not my view, but, um, I think, you know, when I started seminary and definitely by the time I started studying philosophy, I didn't actually take a philosophy class until I was like in my thirties, uh, in, in a master's program in philosophy. Right. And so I was trying to figure out what this is that we were doing. And I was very like content and argument focused. You know, I was almost probably not this obnoxious, but close to that kind of like, you know, the guy that sits down in the middle of a college campus with a poster on his table that says, you know, like feminism is idiocy, change my mind. Right. You know, let's, <laughs> let's hear your argument. Right. Um, yeah. and I am much more, you know, um, like I let me, let's see how you live now. What community are you in? Are you married? Are you single? What are you doing with your life? How do you spend your time? You know, uh, that to me. So in some ways, I've ended up in the Hellenistic, you know, right right alongside those Stoics um, who really want to see how this works out in your life, um, because I think that all of that other stuff is shaping how you think about those arguments. Um, so for instance, and actually a lot of this came, this change in my mind came from researching. I was writing a monograph on. Um, the ritual, ritual epistemology within scripture and um, why, why scripture is so insistent that you do rituals in order to know something, right? So there's a really unique way to talk about ritual, rituals in the ancient world, uh, Greco-Roman or otherwise. And, um, and I used to think of my classroom, you probably sympathize with this, as like, okay, here's the content we need to get through. Uh -huh. And after working through all the ritual epistemology in scripture, I was like, oh, I'm asked, that's the wrong focus. I should be thinking, what rituals am I going to ask them to embody throughout the semester that are going to uh, allow them to see what I'm really trying to show them? Uh, so I think that's been a, a major change in my thinking. I have lots of things that I thought were true that it, like, like that there is a single right way to interpret scripture. Like there's just one single interpretation of scripture. Like uh, so now I teach hermeneutics and I now see yeah. how foolhardy that is. Uh, besides being a Christian who believes that we have four gospels that aren't identical, <laughs> that all tell the true, true story of Jesus. Right. So those kinds of things are, I have a baker's dozen of those, but uh -huh. uh, the, the, the kind of how you live your life uh, feature was a big, big eye opener for me. Yeah. I, I'm rethinking how I teach my language classes, but I heard uh, I heard a, uh, uh, a linguist of some sort uh, say that the best language teacher is a planner, not a speaker. Um, mm. and, and that is you should be planning all the different ways that you're going to help your student encounter the language. Mm. Um, and so your primary role isn't a like just trying to fill all of the information into the head of the student um yeah. and yeah do you know this book oh, i teach almost exclusively from it yes yeah, so okay he's, so he's showing he's showing familia romana and I'm, I'm i do spoken latin and written latin like i uh yeah in, okay in so you you fully know this yeah i someone <laughs> just turned me on to this and i started reading it i could not believe how brilliant this book is i was i was oh, yeah. shook uh, so, well, we could have a whole side conversation about teaching languages. I'm trying to find my Hebrew book. So when I teach Hebrew, uh, have you seen, have you seen this? Uh, so this is new from Cook and Homestead. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've been, uh, I've, I've got several of those on the shelves here. Yeah. So they do something like they're like, yeah. you know, they kind of move closer towards, uh, yeah. You can't Warburg, do this but... in Hebrew cause we don't have all the cognates and you know, yeah. what would you do? Like, amen at the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. I have a friend, I have a kind of a friend who's trying to do something similar with Greek. Um, yeah. and, uh, Oh, but, great. Good. That's yeah. a needed resource, but it, it really is thinking about the embodied perspective of the person that you're teaching. Yeah. So I love that. The good planner. I love that. I'm going to steal that from you <laughs> it's, it's not you. mine it's not mine i'll have to figure i can't remember the guy's name uh that okay. i actually heard it from uh but um uh, but yeah so uh 100 agree um i'm actually at uh, the the uh, conventiculum uh this week so i'm in like this thing where every day i gather with other latinists and we read a text and only speak hmm. latin uh play oh, games wow. in latin sing songs in latin do other things uh so i wish i yeah. had those linguistic skills that's that's where i really <laughs> lack so good for you um, 
it's it actually started because I was teaching Latin at a classical Christian school, which I think you just were at the ACCS conference. Yeah, the ACCS. That's right. Yeah. I, uh, well, I had no contact with classical schools, so that was my first contact was at one of their conferences, and uh, I learned a lot in one 24-hour period. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, well, I was teaching at this classical school, and all the parents hated Latin, all the students hated Latin, and David Goodwin, who's now the president, was my uh, headmaster at the time, and very graciously said, I'm going to give you what kind of money, whatever money you need to do this, but we need to do something different in Latin. Um, mm. And there was a, a woman who was also teaching there. She said, there's this place in Rome where all they do is speak Latin and right. Greek. Um, and, uh, and so I look it up and I say, all right, David, I want to do this. So he sends me to Rome for the summer. Um, wow. And, <laughs> and so I did, I only spoke Latin and Greek for the summer. And I was like, Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I had lived and, in France for a while and could speak French, but like I was like, I, why did I never think that you yeah. could you could teach Latin like I knew French? The tradition is so strong. Yeah, when I lived in Jerusalem, actually, when I was writing that book on ritual, we were living in Jerusalem, and I was learning modern Hebrew, and I learned seminary Hebrew, right? Which yeah. God bless them, it was the best they could do in that short of a space of time, and. You know, with an MDiv, you're distracted by all these other things. Yeah. So um, it was as soon as I started reading and speaking modern uh, Israeli Hebrew, my biblical Hebrew just exploded, like all kinds of windows opened in the text yeah. for me. So yeah, high, high advocacy for that style <laughs> of learning. Yeah. And I'm not a great uh, Hebrew reader, speaker, et cetera, but you just yeah. need a little to, that goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Right. Well, uh, we, we yeah we're running short on time, so I, I'm trying <laughs> to figure out. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out uh, which one of these to go through. But one one question that comes up for me when I'm reading this book, and you know, Eusebius may overstate his case here, but it's pithy, so I'll use it. Um, for uh, so uh, Eusebius of Caesarea says, "What is Plato but Moses speaking Attic Greek?" So there's mm. this kind of idea that floats around in the early Christian. Uh, uh, writings that some, somehow Plato must have learned from Moses. Um, and, you know, really uh, the Jewish thing is much older than the Greek thing. Um, so, uh, you know, how would you respond to uh, to um, Eusebius of Caesarea and this kind of idea? I mean, uh, eventually Augustine poo-poos it. He's like, well, really, we know that probably Mo Plato did not yeah, read Moses. Yeah, uh, yeah. They do they do kind of realize that that's not what happened, but it's kind of in the water. So Yeah. Well, there is a uh, uh, just a plug uh, against that view. Well, not against that view, but I, like at least going in the other direction. So there are some conferences I've noticed that have come up, mostly European, ancient Near Eastern scholars, revisiting the the Aegean uh, Mediterranean question, like how much intellectual commerce was going on. You know, the question of, look, if you're a four day boat ride from a place, it's really hard to believe that your ideas weren't infecting each other early, early and often. Yeah. Might not have been the case, but there, there's at least people ex re-exploring that question. Um, B, I love Eusebius's uh, energy, as the kids say these days. I'm vibing with that dude because it, because at least he's going the right direction, right? He's saying there's something good here and what I hear in this Greek thinking, but we have something, but it must have been derivative. Right? <laughs> if it's good, it's derivative, right? Yeah. It's derivative of the ultimately good intellectual world of the Bible. Um, and so I, I at least like that move. I, you know, I haven't read this part of Eusebius and I didn't yeah. look it up, but um, no, no I... Deal. I would, I would say it was probably, it, I, I'm going to guess with Eusebius, it was probably a little bit of naivete as well, um, because there really is like, Plato can't actually have the intellectual world of Moses unless he's inhabiting the, the communitarian philosophy that Moses advocates, right? Um, mm -hmm. So any goods he has are limited and overlapping and goods because he's a human. And maybe, you know, maybe we'll find out one day there was actually more intellectual commerce than we realize in, in the Mediterranean. Um, but yeah, I, I like the move and that's actually, if I wish, I wish theologians and, and quite honestly, biblical scholars would even make that move today and just say like, oh, the primary intellectual resource that we have as Christians is actually the biblical intellectual world. Uh -huh. Everything else is derivative and interesting. Uh -huh. Um, but we need to go to the primary first. I'm yeah. totally ad fontis on so many things. <laughs> ad, yeah, ad fontis. Yeah. Classic slogan for classical schools. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, well, uh, so similarly, um, and, you know, I realize you may not have read a lot of Syriac authors, um, but it just, it struck me here, like, so I'm, I'm learning Syriac, it's a derivative language from yeah, Hebrew, yeah. Um, and in our program, Jeff Wicks, who's been on the podcast, uh, is a famous, pretty well-known Syriac scholar, um, and I'm doing some work on Christian interpretation of the Psalms, uh, so hopefully my book will be out with St. Vladimir's Press in the spring, mm, uh, wow. but... Uh, um, but I'm trying to incorporate the Syriac author some. And Sebastian Brock is a famous Syriac scholar who says um, he says that it's basically Syriac Christianity is Christianity in its Semitic form. Um, yeah. And again, this kind of a, a another kind of pithy phrase, uh, yep. but it encapsulates a little bit of how like when you read the Syriac authors, they are the the um, Memra and Madrasha. These various forms are songs, they're sermons. But they're not writing treatises. Uh, they're not writing right. even dialogues directly, but they're engaging with their community. Like there's all this literature about how Ephraim involves himself with his community, how the stuff that he's writing is, is you know, Koram uh, Ecclesiam, uh, I guess we could say, but, uh, but right. in front of the church rather than uh, in front of God or something. But it's not just alone in a room reading an uh, deductive argument. Right. Um, and so that's kind of, I think that's kind of what Brock is trying to get at. So I don't know, you may not have a lot of familiarity with Syriac Christianity, I, but I don't. And, uh, but interestingly, uh, a, several people have mentioned this to me who do know Syriac Christianity. Uh, B, I work with an organization that works with living Syriac Christian communities in the middle East right now. Okay. Um, C, we have a, a research fellow that we just brought on this year. He's a retired Marine Corps special operations colonel of 30 years, uh, Marine wow. Raider. He happens to be fluent in Arabic, Hebrew, and Syriac, and is doing his oh. PhD at American University right now in Syriac, oh, exploring this exact question. Uh, so, okay. so yeah, I, so I, I don't know anything, uh, but I'm really <laughs> excited to find out where this line of thinking uh, ends, because enough people who in the know have mentioned this to me that there's got to be something to it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, so yeah, I just that was a good, that was a good pickup on your part. Although I'm, okay. I think, Sebastian Brock actually sang for a band in the eighties, like a glam metal band. Maybe that's Sebastian Brock. <laughs> I don't okay. Yeah. That's that's good. You're you're better on the connections than, than I am. Yeah. yeah. Um well, uh, one thing that just kind of like to your point about like trying out some of your ideas, I was curious about the Levites. Uh, the Levites oh, seem to yeah, have a yeah. special, they seem to have a special form of knowing. It's maybe not democratic or trans demographic, as you call it. Yeah. Uh, do they do they know something about God that the rest of us don't know because they get this sort of special ritual participation? Yeah. I love the the little Marxist in you that came out at that point because uh, I, I think we all have that like 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 the good stuff of Marxism right there's some power yeah. the, there's the ability to manipulate a situation like and I, I've been a pastor and work in churches so I'm very sensitive to people who have special roles who can manipulate power to their advantage um, but yeah no I actually work this out in my ritual work um, because this comes okay. up you know women don't have the the same access to rituals as men do children as adults and etc. Um, and, and I, I, where I landed when looking at the, the totality of data across scripture, Old and New Testament, right? So people will point out in the New Testament, women never take communion, right? So does that mean uh -huh. women shouldn't take communion, right? Because it's not advocated, taught, or described. Um, it's like, no, it's presumed. I think I would say there's structured, differentiated participation, uh -huh. uh, but that is not hierarchy. And I think, that's okay. the, I think that's a problem in our thinking is we think everything through hierarchy. Um, but so a woman brings sacrifices to the tabernacle on behalf of her family that a man cannot bring, right? And her sacrifices are necessary for that family to be whole in their relationship right. to God. Uh, a man brings sacrifices that a woman won't necessarily bring. Uh, children come and witness, but they don't necessarily participate. Um, the, the priest handles the elements over to the altar, but the priest can't handle what the, the high priest can handle. Only the high priest can go and work. So everybody has a role to play. I would say it's like a science lab, right? Okay. Everybody is not all looking down the same microscope at the same time. Everybody plays a role. Everybody plays their role. And when they play it diligently, they participate in the community of knowers where their disparate participation, their disparate perspectives actually enrich what they know, right? So again, that single right everybody should have equal access to the same interpretation at all times. It's, in, it's inhumane, honestly. It's like yeah. view from nowhereism. Um, yeah. And that's, so the biblical authors, I don't, and I think the, 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 and if you look at the other part of this too, is 
priests, judges, kings, anybody in that kind of role that we consider authoritative, it's a crappy role. I mean, like you look at it at the end of the day, it's not a fun role. You don't get the goods. You don't get land. You don't like, you yeah. don't get an inheritance. Like it really, it's a blue collar. The priest is a blue collar job. I know we think of it as elites, uh-huh. but the priest basically handled blood and guts and, and yeah. bread most of the day. So, um, yeah, so I think I'm glad you brought that up, but I, I still think that actually adds to the trans demographic, uh, evaluation of scripture that, that yeah, there is no um, classes. It's not elites. So, yeah. Well, I should. <laughs> I, I might be more prone to just thinking hierarchically rather than wanting yeah. there to be some kind of Marxist uh, yeah. thing. It, I yeah. mean, I'm I'm aware of those kind of interpretations, but I was actually yeah. more coming at it from wanting to say that actually Hebrews are closer to a sort of, um, you know, I mean, even pseudo Dionysius has a sort of Christian hierarchy uh, that, yeah. that he talks about working its way up in a kind of beneficial way. So I'm not opposed to certain kinds yeah, no, of no, hierarchies. No, um, sorry, I wasn't I just, accusing just... you of Marxism, but uh, I, I do, th- I do think though we need to more often re rejigger our language away from hierarchy and towards structure, and then discern when it is hierarchy and when it is just a structured, differentiated participation in something. Fair, fair, fair enough. Um, yeah, well, I like I say, I have so many questions, but here I'll I'll give you. Should, maybe can we this talk about the Tom more... Holland one? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Very good. I was going to go to my last one and let you kind of, we could use this as the last one too, if you wanted, but, um, so, so, uh, yeah, the way that I say, I I wrote, uh, to Drew here, uh, Tom Holland and I find Tom Holland and his work, uh, interesting for, uh, exactly the reason that, um, Drew cites, but, uh, you claim that Spider-Man is a great movie. Yeah. Is that what he? Yeah. Is that what he says? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, my my children all know Tom Holland. He's the actor who plays Spider Man in all the new movies. Oh, okay. Yeah. I so don't we're watch just movies. be careful that we're referring okay. to the Oxford historian Tom Holland. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dominion. They're both. Uh, is they're, the, yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, um. Yeah. Um. It. I. I like. I like TV shows. It's not that I'm against like media, but I hate sitting through movies, so I don't ever watch movies. Wow. Um, so, yeah <laughs> that's a, okay that's we'll explore that in a later podcast <laughs> yeah i haven't seen a movie in i don't know a decade uh, okay. <laughs> uh i watch sport my wife makes fun of me i will watch four hours of baseball um but i can i don't i don't like movies <laughs> hey look we all have our pathologies <laughs> yeah. it's cool <laughs> no shame uh, in that game okay so we were talking about tom holland the historian yeah so uh, he so let's see, um, he notices that the West is Hebraic rather than well, so your claim is that what he notices that the West is Hebraic rather than Christian. So Holland yeah. finds he does his history and says, look at how influenced we are by Christianity. And you say, right. look at how influenced we are by the Hebraic thought. So right. Uh, well, yeah. When he says Christianity, you can just swap out. You could say Hebreo Christianity, Judeo Christianity. But my Jewish friends all say like. You know, you guys, like in Nego Montoya, you keep on using that term Judeo-Christian, but all you seem to mean by it is Christian-Christian, right? Uh, you, <laughs> you drop the Judeo-Hebreo-Christian out. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, and, and even thinking about, you know, this kind of like, well, the New Testament is in Greek, right? So is, isn't like Greek somehow, and they're quoting the Septuagint or kind of free-versing with the Septuagint sometimes and um, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Um, I would say, hey, I, I love Tom. Hey, Tom Holland is like 75 years late to the game on this this idea, right? <laughs> so the ancient Near Eastern scholars from the University of Chicago Oriental Institute were saying this back in the 40s. Uh, and these are people who know the other side of the literature, the more the Iron Age and uh, Bronze Age literature. Um, but I would say, like, if you think about the Gospels alone, right? So to separate everything out. The Gospels aren't recorded in Greek. Or I should say the Gospels aren't in Greek. They were actually spoken amongst the witnesses and shared and reshared and re- I mean even Mark's gospel we know from Papias if you take that fragment to be correct is from listening to the oral presentation of the gospel over and over again probably sometimes in Greek sometimes in Aramaic possibly some you know there's like this philo Hebrew there's this return to Hebrew uh, you know a little bit before the time of Jesus so maybe even he heard it in Hebrew right Matthew's gospel there's some indication that there might be very old Hebrew copies as well whether those are derivative from Greek or prior to Greek or not, we don't know. Um, but I would say they're actually not Greek. They're recorded later in Greek after they're processed by the community of witnesses in various languages. 
which means it's an ethno, you know, it's an ethno polyarchy at the very beginning, right? Lots of languages, lots of people from lots of places are talking about this. Matthew puts it in his perspective. Mark copies down Peter's preaching, which is really, you know, if you think about how negative Mark's gospel is towards the disciples, you know, that's either Mark really doing a sham job on Peter or <laughs> or that's how Peter talked about, like, that's his view. Look at how dumb yeah. we were. Look at how doltish and hard-hearted we were, right? Um, and then Luke, you know, does this kind of broader, goes to the witnesses, right? And mm-hmm. Uh, and whatever languages they're communicating those things to him, I'm sure Greek is eventually how it ends up. And he puts together this orderly account. So um, I, I do think language is important, but the only is important, you know, if I'd say this way, the intellectual world of the Bible, if you follow the storyline of the Bible, it couldn't have happened any just anywhere, right? It really is this particular people in this particular land, a waterless land, that's an important feature of it, right? Because they have to rely on God to actually have food. Uh, this particular people, this particular land, and in this particular language, right? Um, if you ask on Sinai what language, when God carves with his own finger into the stones, the, these commandments or these words, that these 10 things, um, what language does he write it in? Well, we presume it's Hebrew. And then you ask a question like, well, is it because God speaks Hebrew or because the Hebrews speak Hebrew? Um, now, the Quran has a very definitive answer to this question. Yeah, sure. he, he would write it in Ar- uh, Arabic because God speaks or Allah speaks Arabic. Um, but again, here, uh, it's I would say er- the totality of evidence from the scripture itself is that it's in Hebrew because uh, God wants to communicate to these people who speak that language. Right. And su- supposedly he would write, write in Paleo Hebrew rather than square Aramaic script as well, because they wouldn't understand that. Um so for me, it's important because that gets at the the necessity of the locale and the language and the people that actually create a particular intellectual tradition, which we would say the same thing about the Greeks. Like it's not a, their location and the language they're speaking is not happenstance. Uh, you know, Latin and Greek and Hebrew, you know, all of these languages, you know, Latin is not as versatile of a language at this point uh, to do a lot of the things that the New Testament is doing, uh, storytelling and poetry wise. Um, yeah. And and Calvin loves to point out every time where the Latin makes not a mistake, but it just is insufficient to say the kinds of things that they that is being yeah. said in the Hebrew or the Greek there, right? So I I, I think um, so when I say it's not just Christian, it's Hebraic. I I, I mean like three layers down, it's Hebraic, <laughs> even in the New Testament, like it's it's all the way infected. Um, but because they live in this non uh, non theocracy of Israel. And it was true even in the Old Testament, even when they're at their yeah. highest power as a nation, they're constantly interacting, engaging. And I tried to show in the book how even in Genesis, you're seeing Hebraic thought engaging Egyptian thought. You're seeing Hebraic right. thought engaging Mesopotamian thought. When they when they are exiled into those places, they are engaging in those forms, but usurping them with what they think is a better form of reasoning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, would you like to take one more? Or do you want to go? Uh, I, I was going to give you the sort of the softball question. What What would it look like if Christians took seriously your charge yeah. to return to to the Hebraic philosophy of the Christian scriptures? Um, well, you probably heard it, but I, I think I would just say the one thing yeah. that this is going to sound so patronizing and demeaning, and I kind <laughs> of mean it to be. Um, like it's part of my project, my call in life, I think right now is, if we just valued the scriptures as their own sufficient, savvy, sophisticated, sorry, I'm alliterating now, uh, <laughs> uh, intellectual world, that, and I, and I would just say we don't, right? And I've spoken to lots of universities, PhD students, you know, and there's this, and, and, and it comes back to this, like, okay, this whole topic you just worked out, you realize the biblical authors have their own abstract view of that topic and how that works out. Um, and sometimes I'm like, what, and you nailed it. Like you're right on top of it. Uh, but do you know how you nailed it? Like, do you actually know the necessary connections from their thinking to your thinking? And often you don't, I mean, there's a very famous, very popular Christian philosopher who writes stuff that I, I think is great. And I agree with a lot of it. I don't think he can actually connect it to biblical thinking at all. I've seen him try and I'm like, it's not, that's not exactly what's going on there. Right. I could articulate better than he could. Right. And so I think if we want to if we want to say that our that our thinking is in some way resonant with God, this is how this is these are the communities and the way that He has taught us to speculate about the nature of the world. I think it's worth just first truck stop, 
Hebraic thought and then start putting it in conversation as it's meant to be put in conversation with other philosophies and other ways of thinking about the world and then uh, see, see what happens. Right. Um, and of course I worked, you know, my work was on epistemology within scripture and then scientific epistemology in the 20th and 21st century. Like most people wouldn't put those things in conversation, but I think once you sufficiently understand what's going on in scripture, there's actually a riveting conversation to be had where scripture uh, will endorse much of scientific epistemology and then sharpen it in some ways. Well, my guest today has been Drew Johnson. Um, and as my fa- one of my favorite podcasts is Econ Talk. Um, and he says, uh, thanks for being a part of, e- of uh, Christian. Well, he says, thanks for being a part of the history of e- or ah. He says, thanks for being a part of Econ Talk. Um, and, but yeah, thanks for being a part of history Christian theology. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I'm honored that you would like step out this far out of your lane and, and that, and that you haven't made me feel like an idiot for me stepping this far out of my lane into yours. So it's been an, it's been an honor. Well, good.